This morning's gospel passage is bookended by darkness on both sides. In the context of Matthew uh, chapter 17, what has happened is Jesus has been now clearly identified by his disciples as the Christ. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus then says something that catches them all off guard. He says, the son of man is going to be handed over to suffering and death, that he's going to die and on the third day rise. And that is a tough thing to bear. So Peter, of course, pushes back and says, surely not, Lord, that will never happen. And Satan uses him in that moment to tempt Jesus from his mission. And of course, Jesus rejects him and says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, he needs to deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. That is a hard teaching for them to hear. And then they see his glory. On the other side of it, when Jesus comes back down the mountain, he finds that the disciples are frustrated because they are struggling with a demon of epilepsy that's in a boy, and they can't cast it out for whatever reason. They didn't pray well enough. They didn't fast. They didn't, something, they failed on their part. And Jesus comes back down from the mountain and from that that manifestation of his glory into the darkness of a broken world. And it's in between those two bookends of darkness that we catch a glimpse of something so glorious and so powerful. The shocking truth is that Jesus is the glory of God in himself. It says that his face shone like the sun, not like the moon, like the sun. The moon reflects something else's glory. In Jesus is the glory of God. It manifested and it it radiated out of him. It's not derivative. It actually is him. He is the glory of God. And they couldn't see it until that moment. And oftentimes for us, we can't see it until certain moments, certain glimpses. And as I prayed, we're here this morning. Each one of us is here this morning because we've caught glimpses of it. We've, we've picked up hints of it. There's been something in our life that has drawn us and we started to recognize there's way more to this whole Christianity thing than I've realized. And maybe you're further down that path of discipleship and you've seen more and more and your faith is strong and you are confident of his glory and maybe you're still questioning. But what I find is in this life, we are looking for glory. We're all looking for it in different ways. And it just, anything other than God comes up short. I think about, as we were worshiping, I was, I was momentarily overtaken by the magnitude of what we're doing. We've come into the house of God to presume to stand before him recognizing that he's holy and powerful. And and then I was afraid. And I prayed though. And I thought, you know, the Lord has done something on the cross that has made us worthy to stand before him. And he's given us a picture of a future. And in that moment, a scripture from a a men's group I was in a number of years ago came back to mind from Psalm 27.4, I think is the reference. And the psalmist says, one thing There's one thing that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his holy temple. That's the one thing. That's the thing that will keep us coming back. That's the thing that will satisfy. Anything less than his glory will come up short. And so we're here for that purpose. We we oftentimes can't see it though. It's like darkness clouds in and we forget and our vision gets veiled in some way. And then when we catch the glimpse, it's like, ah, this this big epiphany moment. And life is full of those epiphany moments. 
I, I, my wife and I are watching the uh, TV series, The Crown, about Queen Elizabeth. I think it's a Netflix series, and we've been working our way through that, and um, we're just in the first um, season of it, and there's a scene where the Queen Mother, uh, Queen Elizabeth, the uh, Who's, who's just recently lost her husband and her daughter, who's now the actual Queen Elizabeth, has taken office early. The Queen Mother was 51 when she became a widow and she's kind of displaced. She's not the, the sitting queen anymore. And she goes up to Scotland to visit some friends and hang out in their castle and starts thinking about maybe getting a castle of her own. And there's an old one that's across a waterway that's beautiful and it's in ill repair. And she walks with her two friends over there. And when she knocks on the door, uh, the the, military, the retired military uh, captain uh, recognizes his friend, the commander, and his wife, and he says, oh, and there's a third. And, and, he, and he says, wait, don't tell me your name. I, I recognize you. We've met before. And she says, no, we haven't. And, and he says, don't tell me. It's on the tip of my tongue. And they go through this whole um, discussion about her potentially buying this old castle. And at one point, he, he says, wait, you're, a, you're an actress, aren't you? No, wait, a singer. Don't tell me. And he, and he keeps wrestling with that because she's so out of context for him. And then finally, the next day, she's walking with him arm in arm down the beach back to his friend's castle, her, her friend's castle. And then one of the aides of parliament shows up in a black trench coat and walks down on the beach and says, forgive me, your majesty. Uh, you've got to come with me to London right now. I've just been with the prime minister and you're needed for something. And it's in that moment that he recognizes. And, and the queen mother, uh, I, I wrote it down. She, she, uh, he, he says, blasphemously, blasphemously, he says, oh my God. And then she says, oh, it's come to you, has it? <laughs> and, 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 and he says, why on earth didn't you just say? And then pauses for a second and then says something like, your majesty? Because automatically he's, his, it's changing now. He's recognized that he's in the presence of royalty. And she says, because um, people change their behavior. He's, she says, because people always make such a fuss and stop being themselves. Now, think about this for a second. Sometimes it's appropriate to make a fuss and stop being ourselves. We don't want to just be our sloppy, sinful, lazy, whatever in the presence of royalty. We want to recognize the greatness in our midst. So we put on our Sunday best, which is appropriate. We come into God's house. We recognize his glory and we come to worship him. It's a good thing to do that. Sometimes it's right. Now this text uniquely reveals Jesus as the son of God in his glory. And if it's true... If what this shows us in Matthew 17 is true, then it should be our highest priority. It should, it should change everything for us, total change. And if it's not true, then we should ignore it completely and throw the religion out, throw it all out. Don't, don't do any of it. And the problem for us is that most of us hang somewhere right about in the middle. We're not willing to say, ah, that whole religion stuff, get rid of it. Nor are we willing to fall on our faces and surrender every aspect of our life to God's glory. And it's because that veil of darkness comes over our eyes and we forget the glory of God. We forget. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about the Lord liar lunatic um, thesis he's got, or I don't know what you call it, but he says, we can't just make Jesus out to be a good moral teacher. He didn't give us that option. He is either a liar and he's made all this stuff up, which makes him worse than the devil himself because he's deceiving so many people, or he's really mentally crazy. He's a lunatic. And C.S. Lewis says, on par with a poached egg. He's so crazy, he is no real value. And he really thinks he's the Messiah, but he's not. 
But of course, no one would follow him if he was crazy. He made so much sense and he did things with great power, which leaves only a third option. If he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then he's got to be the Lord, in which case we should fall down our, our knees before him and worship him. And then C.S. Lewis says, but let's throw out this nonsense about him being a good moral teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. He was so clear in the scriptures that he was not just a teacher, although he is a great teacher, don't get me wrong, but he's so much more than that. He's the son of God. He is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than any other man that's ever lived. And we have to recognize that. So this morning, my goal in this sermon is that we would catch a renewed glimpse of glory, that we'll look at just a couple of facets of the glory of Jesus, and that we'll take away a couple of logical implications that I hope then will begin to change how we approach this life and what we do with our time, what we do with everything that God has placed temporarily in our charge. So let's look at the passage. Right away, Matthew, the author of this particular gospel, is making a number of references to an event of the Old Testament. And you cannot miss the connection. So I'm talking about when Moses goes up on the mountain. We actually, Torin read for us from Exodus 24. When Moses goes up on a mountain and is in the presence of God in his glory. So there's a whole bunch of parallels. Um, It starts right out and says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain. Okay, if you go back to that passage in Exodus 24, it says that Moses went on the mountain and for six days, God's cloud of glory was around him. And then after six days, the Lord spoke from the cloud to him. So there's that picture, that, that six days. There's a little illusion there. And then um, it's, it is a mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. And Moses and Elijah appear here to Jesus. So Moses and Elijah could be I guess, um, representative of the law and the prophets, the old covenant. But maybe more significantly, they were the two figures that met with God in his glory on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And here they are on a high mountain again, this time with the Son of God being revealed in glory. And then there's the shiny face. Jesus' countenance begins to radiate and it becomes bright and it glows. I want to jump back to Exodus 34 and read something for you that I think is just so interesting. Um, Exodus 34 and it's verses 29 to 33. When Moses went up on the mountain and was in the presence of God, he began to reflect the glory of God. And he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And there, there were no mirrors on Mount Sinai, so he hadn't looked in a mirror recently. When he came down, he was glowing, reflecting the glory of God. And it was freaky to all the people. Just listen to this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Just stop for a minute. Imagine somebody radiating that kind of light coming near you. I would immediately start backing away right? That is, that is, it's in black and white on the page. It doesn't quite communicate what it must have felt like for Aaron and all of those people. But Moses called to them and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them, commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses has, had finished speaking, he put a veil over his face He was no longer able even to hang out in the community the same way because he had been in the presence of God's glory and it had changed him. 
But as Dan said at the beginning, the glory was fading away. In Jesus' case, it's not fading away. It is increasing. And for a moment on the mountain, they got to see it. Peter, James, and John got to see that, and it was so powerful. Peter got the references. He, He understood what was happening here. So he starts to speak. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's not worried about himself and James and John because it's not about a tent from rain. The reference is to the, he says tent, but the word is tabernacle. It's a reference to how they met with God in the Old Testament. God was very exacting in Exodus about how the tabernacle would be built. And it would have a place for holiness, the holy of holies. And then there'd be an outer area and people could only come in so close. It was a way of interacting for sinful people to interact with a holy God. And so Peter recognizes that. But still, some of the glory is veiled. And it's not until the cloud moves in around them. Again, try to picture that. You're standing there with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, if if that's not weird enough, and then this bright cloud starts to move towards you, right? I'd start backing away from it again. And then it comes around them. It says they're terrified and they fall down on their faces. Because the problem is this. God is so holy that we can't be in his presence. Moses who did spend time on the mountain, asked to see his glory fully revealed, and God said, you cannot see my face or you will die. So he hides him in the cleft of a rock, and then he passes his glory by, and he protects him from seeing his face, and he lets him see just the backside, and that glory is the kind of thing that will change a person forever. He's so holy. But you know what is powerful about Christ? That temple veil, the curtain, that separated the holy of holies from the the rest of the temple was torn when that cross, when that cross happened. When Jesus died on the cross, it says, we'll, we'll hear about it on Good Friday, the temple curtain tore in two, right down the middle. Because the glory of God had broken out and had gone into where the people were. And because we now had this mediator Christ, we were able to be in the midst of that glory. And that glory was going to be in us. And as Dan started the service with, the glory that's in us is going from one degree to another increasing. Unlike Moses' face that was decreasing. He is doing something in us that will make us more and more like him. It's an eternal work. He's preparing us for something that is so big and so powerful. Now this vision on the mountain was not for Jesus' benefit. He knew he's the son of God. He'd been affirmed by the father at his baptism. He's affirmed here again. But they needed to see this because they were not ready for the cross. Jesus' cross or their cross that they would have to bear. They just simply weren't ready for that. And so they needed to see this. I came across um, an illustration from something that Soren Kierkegaard wrote about 250 years ago. He was a a, a Danish... um, scholar, philosopher, author, Um, and he uses the illustration of two traveling men at night going through a wilderness area in darkness. And he said one was a rich man and one was a poor man. And the rich man, because he could afford lanterns, would light up around his carriage at night and have kind of a, if you want to consider it, a, a safety circle my words, not Soren Kierkegaard's, but he, in that area, he could see the, the light around and it made him feel temporarily safe until he started to think about all the darkness that's just outside of the reach of that. The poor man, however, did not have the luxury of a lantern, and so all he had was the darkness, but he had the stars. So he looked through the darkness to something else that was beyond and bigger and brighter, and it made the, the, the present darkness less. It just sort of pierced through it and, it, and he was able to look and get a bigger picture. And I want to say for us, the same is true. If we can get the glimpses of the glory, 
that's through on the other side of the darkness, it makes the darkness bearable. It makes us understand it's temporary. It reminds us that we were made for more, not less. It makes it possible for us to go through the difficulties of this life, the pain, the hardship, the cost of discipleship. That illustration is in the work of Soren Kierkegaard called The Gospel of Suffering. And it's a theology of both glory, but a theology of the cross as well. Now, I want to look at three, briefly, look at three facets. Just fa- These are facets. There's so much more to the glory of Jesus than these, these things. But from this passage, I want to look at three things. First, I want to look at the glory of his purity. I happen in this service to be wearing a white vestment. And this is uh, an alb, it's called. And it is white to our eyes. But it's not really, really white. And it's certainly not glowing. And if you turned off all the lights, I would look as dark as anybody else. There would be nothing brilliant about it. And when they went up on that mountain, Jesus, who had a robe similar to this, it started to glow. It started to be so bright, as one of the other gospels says, you couldn't possibly bleach a garment that bright. It was symbolic of something. It was symbolic of his purity, his holiness, the fact that he is sinless, that he's a spotless lamb. If Jesus went to the cross and was not unblemished and was not sinless, then he would not have been able to make atonement for our sins. But he's holy and he's pure. He's a spotless lamb. And in that moment on the mountain, the inner purity and holiness of Christ, temporarily for them, came onto the outside so they could see the true depth of what the, what the, the glory of the majesty in which they were standing. I like how Isaiah 53 puts it in, Isaiah 53 too. Speaking of this suffering servant, ahead of time, speaking of who the Christ is going to be, it says that he had nothing in his appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was rather ordinary. He didn't look, he wasn't, you know, seven feet tall. He didn't have some kind of beauty that would make him a model in magazines. He looked like a basic Middle Eastern man. Probably looked like the rest of them. So it's so interesting when he's examined by Pilate and he's examined by Herod and the others, they're looking for royalty. This guy should look like a king. And he doesn't. He looks more or less like the rest of the rabbis and it's unassuming. It's underwhelming. But that's the externals. Because inside there's something so great and powerful, this holy being. And for a moment on the mountain, they see it. it what's on the inside, that inner purity comes out on his garments and reflects in glory. Second thing, the glory of his divine favor. It says that anyone who hangs, is hanged on a tree is cursed. And his disciples and anyone really who would have seen what happened would have assumed that God was not pleased with his son or this Jesus character. Clearly, God's favor was not on him, otherwise he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But that's not true. We see the glory of the divine favor here that the voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. With him, I'm well pleased. Jesus had the favor of his father. He was serving his father as an act of love, as an offering back. It was in obedience to the father's will. So Jesus had God's favor and had pleased him. And then also there's the glory of suffering. That the cross is referred to as the glory of Christ. If you read the high priestly prayer in John 17, it speaks of his glory, the glory being on the cross, not jumping past it. It was, in fact, a love offering to the Father, and it was the way that Jesus was going to win us. Do you know there's something so interesting about the future Garden of Eden as opposed to the historical one? 
from Genesis to Revelation, if we were to have never sinned and fallen, we would have only seen certain things of God's character. But because of sin and because of the need for the cross, we saw the glory of a God who's willing to be a suffering servant, who's willing to sacrifice out of love for us. And so when we see the glory of God in the renewed Eden, whenever that day comes, it will be more glorious than the first one because of the glory of the cross. We would not have known some things about God that are so important. The cross is the glory of Christ. It shows us who this God is that we serve. It's so powerful. Paul the apostle summarizes all of his preaching as this. We preach Christ and him crucified. Now, I know a number of you are well-read. I know a number of you listen to other preachers and sermons. Um, Regrettably, some of you watch certain preachers on TV. I want to give you an honest test of orthodoxy. Ask this question of any message you ever hear that presumes to be Christian. Is there a cross in the center of it? Both in the words, in the message, as well as even literally, like a cross somewhere in there. If it's just good ideas with a veneer of Christianity over it, and there's no cross in the middle, it's not the gospel. We preach Christ and him crucified. And a lot of the messages I've seen out there sound something like this. God is great. He's a savior. He's a hero. Jesus is our example, and he empowers us to improve. And we can overcome our problems by copying his example. And it does not have a cross in the middle at all. And it misses completely the glory of the cross, that Jesus saves us and we do not save ourselves. It was Christ and him crucified that we proclaim. We see the courage of Jesus who was willing to stay on that cross when he didn't have to. That was not his cross in the sense that he deserved it. He didn't. But he humbled himself and he took that that suffering for us to win us. So we don't save ourselves. He does. And therefore we respond by worshiping him. So now these two, two responses. The first is worship. The natural, obvious response, if you catch a glimpse of God's glory, is to fall down in worship before him. To bring your best to him. To do whatever you can to acknowledge his glory and goodness. Worship is the natural thing. Ascribe to the Lord the honor due his name. Ascribe to him, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory is the ending that we put on the Lord's Prayer. We are trying to raise up and recognize what is true. Even our liturgy says, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we stand in the midst of something so much bigger than what we normally see. There are angels present, but do we see them? Not usually, but we can remind ourselves of that. We, are, we have the Spirit of God here in this house. Do we acknowledge that? The, God, the Lord has given us the Scriptures, and as we read them, this, this book is living and active. He begins to lift that veil off, and we start to see who God is, and therefore we are transformed. God's glory is once again revealed. Worship exposes it, as Dan said. It helps us fix our gaze upon His It helps us to understand who he is. And then the other thing, not just responding in worship, but then the other thing that's really important is hold on loosely to this world, to anything, because it's transient. It's passing away. If we keep a glimpse and a picture in our minds of God's glory, then we're willing to let go of anything, anything that might be fading away, anything that might be a cost of discipleship for us. We're willing to give it up because we know that something so much greater is coming and how much more powerful that will be. So the Apostle Paul is able to say this. So we do not lose heart, 
though our outer self is wasting away. Every year, I'm one year older. Every year, you're one year older. I don't play flag football in January anymore. Did anybody ever notice we stopped doing flag football in Januarys? I'm the reason. <laughs> After about five years of that, I went, no more. I, my body can't handle running around on that field. And nobody was complaining, by the way, that we quit doing that. <laughs> I'm just saying, our, our outer self is wasting away. But we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Because our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Like Moses, who asked to see God's glory, let us not settle for anything less than that. Go after his glory. Keep your gaze fixed upon him. Lent is a natural time to help us do that. Let's engage fully in this next 40-some days and try to get a glimpse of his glory so that then our lives will line up with that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled by your love for us and your sacrifice. We recognize that we are not worthy, but that is who you are, the one who comes and makes us worthy. Have mercy on us, Lord. And show us just a glimpse of your glory. We can't handle all of it. But just a little glimpse. So that we might fix our eyes on you. We ask this in the mighty name of your son Jesus. Amen.